0: Um, So this morning we're talking about the discipline of simplicity. We've been in this series on the spiritual disciplines where we've been looking at just different uh, spiritual disciplines that the church has been practicing since really its beginning uh, out of this kind of this idea or this conviction that uh, faith isn't something you just kind of get one day and, you know, pray, receive Christ, and then move on, that it's something that we cultivate through many, many years of practice. And so these spiritual practices have been what have sustained Christians for many years hundreds, thousands of years, and so we've been looking at some of those. And this morning we're looking at kind of a weird one, I know for some. It's called the discipline of simplicity. And for us it's kind of weird because it kind of connotes the life of a monk or a nun, you know, somebody who's taken a vow of poverty. And uh, I just want to tell you at the front end, that's not what it's about. So I want to take a moment to to pause and just pray over uh, what God's going to teach us, but uh, I want to invite you to kind of have an open heart to what God's going to say to us this morning as well. So let's pray. God, let's, uh, we just pause to step into your presence this morning in the opening of your word. We thank you that your word is alive, that it's active and sharp, that it has the power to open our lives to new revelation, um, which both encourage us but also challenge us, God. So I pray that around our community this morning, both encouragement and challenge, wherever each of us has come in, God, would you speak into our lives personally, and then would you also shape us collectively to be a people that go out from here, God, and, um, are your presence of hope in both Lake City as well as the wider city of Seattle in which we live. Thanks for your word, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So I have this theory, this just as a way of setting this up, I have this theory that everybody has a piece of furniture in their house that they're just dying to get rid of. Uh, usually it's in their basement. Sometimes it's in your living room. Does anybody have one of these? Yeah. So I got this, I, I kind of got this theory, the beginnings of my theory started in college when I was leading young life in Tacoma with uh, Stadium High School. And uh, we played this game, Bigger, Better. How many of you played Bigger, Better? Yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. So here's how Bigger, Better works. You, it's like a neighborhood scavenger hunt. Uh, each team starts with a toothpick or maybe a paper clip, uh, whatever, some small item that's worth nothing. Goes about two hours. Your your job is to go around the neighborhood and then come back after two hours with the biggest, best item you can find, and uh, and so you go to you go door to door just like you would imagine, and you knock on the door and then you kind of tell the owner of the house, hey, I want to make a trade up for whatever you hold. Starts with the toothpick, and then you hope that they're going to give you something bigger and better. Uh, And so a toothpick might turn into a, a can of soup or a box of mac and cheese. Then it escalates to, like, one of those candles you got in college. Remember those? <laughs> or maybe, like, a, a beautiful piece of jewelry or an old beach towel. Uh, maybe you're lucky and you get, like, a, a, the biggest Cadillac of baby strollers or a ping-pong table or a lawnmower. There was this one time we played. Again, a group of high school kids. <clears throat> this one team returned with an acetylene torch, and, uh, which was only light, slightly less disturbing that I found out that they, they had exchanged it with an old porcelain toilet. So I'm like, that's when you know the game's out of control when <laughs> toilets and, like, what's going on here? Is this, like, retired plumbers and retired welders are, like, giving these high school kids stuff. But, anyway, what this game taught me and what I, what I, this conviction of this theory has taught me is that we have, we live lives of excess. That we all have things in our lives that we're just dying to give away and we have so much and, by the way, giving those things away, bigger and better, doesn't change a single aspect of our lives, doesn't deplete us in any way. Excess is like margin. It's more than we need. Uh, and, and it actually turns out to be, whether it's a high school student or somebody else, something somebody, somebody else ex- needs exactly or wants exactly. So anything more than enough is excess. And we have this uncanny ability to live with it, you know, to, to accumulate it, to keep it in our garages and our basements. And we lack the ability to get rid of it. It's so hard when you've accumulated things, right? How many of you have garages with stuff you just, ah oh, need to, you know, get rid of it. Um, if we've acquired stuff and it serves no purpose. We're all likely asking the question at some level, how much is enough? Like, have I gotten enough? Or do I have too much? In fact, that question, John Rockefeller was once asked that question, how much is enough? Do you remember what he answered? One of the richest men in history, just a little bit more just a little bit more. And I think it's interesting that though Rockefeller had exponentially more zeros in his bank account than you or I add up all of our money will ever have, uh, we have the same struggle as he did. He wanted more, you and I want more, our desires just don't end easily. Uh, Whether you have so much stuff that your lives you're just waiting at the front door to give it away to some high school kid, or you have so many zeros in your bank account, you've lost count, you've lost control, you no longer know when to stop, right? Uh, And thus, the discipline of simplicity kind of enters into the life of the follower of Christ. Simplicity helps us face that question, how much is enough, and answer it, the excess of our culture, with the declaration that Christ is enough. (laughs) He's not just enough. He's more than enough. He's enough for the moment we live in. He's enough for the next moment. He's enough for the struggle you're facing. He's enough for the struggle you don't know you're going to face. He's enough. And we need this discipline of simplicity to tell that truth to our lives, because most of us don't believe it. We don't believe Christ is enough. That's why we end up with more than we need. That's why we ask that question, how much? (laughs) Because we don't believe in the struggle we're in. We struggle with excess. We struggle with too much. We struggle with scarcity. We don't believe that He's going to take care of us, that we're deeply cared for, that God intends to bless our lives. The song we sang, we don't believe that God's good. He's never going to let us down. And so uh, we need the discipline of simplicity and we need the practice of it because it's perhaps it's the only thing that will sufficiently reorient our lives toward that, that truth that He, Christ, is enough and then live lives free to receive His provision but also then to give it away freely, blessed to be a blessing, right? God has provided enough for our lives and then He's given us enough then to give that enough away. So I want to get into the discipline with you by just exploring a few things about the discipline of simplicity through the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew 10, or Mark 10. It appears in all three of the Gospels. Um, Chose the Mark version, even though we kind of have been reading through Luke together during this series, for a couple of reasons that we'll get into. Uh, But we're going to look at three things. The problem with stuff, okay? The solution to the problem, and then the result of pursuing that solution, okay? Okay. So the problem, the solution, and the result. Pretty simple, right? Okay. So let's look at the problem first. And the problem, I kind of did a fill in the blank in your bulletin, but the problem is simply this, that our stuff is possessing us. So in the story of the rich young ruler, right at the beginning, verse 17 of Mark 10, this guy, we call him the rich young ruler, though it's not said exactly that way, there's this picture of this man who comes to Jesus. He runs up to Jesus and he falls down on Jesus' knees. This is a picture, quite frankly, of a desperate man, not a rich young ruler. I mean, he, the reason he's desperate, for two reasons. Men didn't run then. This man runs up to Jesus. Uh, running for men, especially men who had money, men who had prestige, like this guy probably did, was shameful, shameful for grown men to run on that day. It's the stuff that kids did. Kids today, I mean, men kind of don't run today. If you go down to South Lake Union or downtown Seattle, men are not running around in their business suits. You walk. You have, you know, it's kind of an honorable thing to do. He's running, and he runs and falls down at Jesus' knees, which is also something men didn't generally do. And the reason that's important, that idea of him falling at Jesus' knees, is there's a couple different words used in the Greek language to fall at one's knees. There's the word prosneos, which is where we get our word prostrate from. That's not this word. He's not prostrating himself at Jesus' knees, because that would be a, a dignified thing to do. The word that Mark uses in his gospel is gronupeto, which can either mean just to simply kneel or it's the act of imploring aid. Do you see it? This man's coming to Jesus for help. He's desperate. He's seeking out Jesus as a counselor. And, and you're kind of going, wait, counseling? I thought this guy was like a rich, young ruler, proud. He No, he needs counseling. He's, he's like checked into the office. So let me just show you who this guy is just to, just to tell you why that is. Uh, he needs counseling. He's troubled because uh, on the outside, he looked unbelievably pulled together. He's, we think of him as rich. He's young, probably good-looking. It's hard not to be rich and young and not be good-looking these days, right? Uh, he's virtuous, as we read in the story. He has character. There's just something so attractive about this guy, right? He's the guy everybody wants to be around. He has it all together, but... <laughs> He doesn't because the first thing he says to Jesus falls at his knees. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the reason that's significant, you have to put that into context. This is like the two plus two question of Jesus' day, okay? Everybody knew the answer. Uh, In other words, the rabbinical writings from those times are filled. Like if you read those, the rabbis were always talking about that question. And they're always posing what must we do to inherit eternal life? That's the question that all the rabbis are talking about. And they'd pose the question, and they'd always give you the same answer. In other words, there were no schools of thought on that question. There were no factions or denominations or parties. The question was always the same. The answer was always the same. And here's the answer. (laughs) Obey the commandments. Obey the commandments. And by the commandments, they meant the Ten Commandments. Avoid sin, obey the commandments. That's it. That's what it took to inherit eternal life. So he would have known the answer before Jesus even answered it. He knew the answer to that question. He knew what 2 plus 2 was. It's a really interesting question for him to ask. Why did he ask Jesus that question if he knew the answer? Well, look at Jesus' answer in verse 21. I think it reveals the, the reason. He says, One thing you lack. I mean, really that's the gist of why this man fell at Jesus' knees asking for help. What Jesus is saying is, you know, he's coming to this guy. He's, this guy's coming to him and said, I've been so accomplished in my life. I've done everything. I've got my degree. I've got a successful business. I've made great financial decisions. I've invested wisely. I've got a beautiful family. Uh, my relationships are all going really well. I'm successful morally, religiously, socially. And yet there's something missing. Like, I feel empty, I need help. And of course, he needs help, right? Hindsight's always twenty-twenty on these stories, because remember what he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We know in the 21st century, anyone doing or accomplishing to get eternal life is headed down the wrong road. That's going to be an endless, weary, empty, insecure journey. So we know that, but that man didn't. He didn't know that that was a problem. So he asked Jesus for help. And look at what Jesus does in verse 19. He does a little spiritual inventory like a good counselor would. He says, well, you know the commandments, don't you? And why do you think Jesus does that? If he knows the man knows the commandments, knows the answer to the question, why do you think he takes him through the commandments? Uh, It'd be like Jesus saying, hey, you know, what's 2 plus 2? You're a grown man. Well, of course you know the answer. And that's the rub. He doesn't know the commandments. So did you notice anyone who's been around the church for any length of time knows Jesus starts to take him through the Ten Commandments, but he skips a bunch. Uh, he asks the man some specific questions on some specific commandments. He says, like, have you defrauded anybody in your business? Like, have you, are you running an ethical business? Well, yeah, I am. Have you lied? No, I haven't lied. Uh, have you stolen or robbed from any of your employees? No, I haven't done that. How's your marriage? Oh, it's great. Have you been faithful to your wife? Yes. Are you spending time with your kids? Yes. You know? Are you nice to your neighbor? Yes. <laughs> Are you taking care of your parents in their old age? Yes. So he's, Which is interesting because according to this man, he's held up every one of the commandments except Jesus doesn't go through all the commandments. He's been a model Christian. Okay, we hold him up, put him on a poster, yet Jesus skips some. In a sense, Jesus is, is doing what he's always doing. He's kind of leaving this man to ask deeper questions about his life. So he affirms this man. He says, yeah, you, you've lived out a great life, but one thing you lack. You don't know the commandments because you lack something. In other words, he's pointing out this man's blind spot. You guys know what a blind spot is. This aspect of his life that he's either completely ignorant of or he doesn't yet comprehend, yet it's, it's like right in front of his nose. So like I said, Jesus left out some commandments. He, he left out in particular number one, two, four, and 10, okay? I had some time to go through that. I know there's not a lot of 10 commandment whizzes or geeks out there, but like he left out, you know, the fourth commandment, we went over this a few weeks ago, is the Sabbath commandment. Not sure why Jesus leaves that out other than it's a long one and maybe he didn't have time. Um, that's another sermon, but 1, 2, and 10 are really interesting for Jesus to leave out. Uh, The reason they're interesting is that Hebrew scholars will say 1, 2, and 10 are like bookends. They hold all the commandments together. And if you're not practicing these ones, stop. Stop even trying with the rest, okay? So 1 and 2, have no other gods. Don't make any idols. You guys know that, right? Uh, And then 10, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. You guys know those commandments? What Jesus is saying is you're not practicing those. You're, one thing you're lacking, and they're powerfully interrelated. Okay, they're like bookends. So take number 10. We'll just unpack this for a moment. Thou shalt not covet. Okay. Do you know what coveting is? Do you have any ideas what coveting is? It's, uh, it's about stuff. We're talking about stuff this morning in simplicity. Uh. But the key is it's not about an outward pursuit of stuff. And that's what we kind of think of as simplicity, right? Like getting rid of your stuff, your, your stuff in your garage, your stuff in your basement, right? Simplifying your life. Covening is actually about inward striving, okay? It, covening is like inner grasping. It's not stealing. That's the eighth commandment. <laughs> covening is inner grasping for more and more and more. It's that inner grasping for well, your neighbor's stuff. It's that desire that possesses you for more. I have, in other words, this is coveting. I have to have this or these things or my life won't add up. Like without that size of an income, without that size of a house, without that new iPhone or whatever it is, I'll just feel incomplete and empty. I have to have it. And you know how this relates to the first and second commandments? That's the last one, coveting. The first and second commandments were this. Love God with all your heart and and don't put anything before him. Don't make anything... Your God. That's what it means to be make an idol, is to make something else your God. Don't let anything other than God be your God. Be totally absorbed in God. That's the positive way to put those two. So the tenth, thou shalt not covet, means means this in relationship to the first and second. Love God enough to be content with God. Love God enough to be content with God. Have no other gods. Don't make your stuff, your neighbor's stuff, any stuff, your God. Don't make it an idol. Uh, don't make it, the, your pursuit, it, it's the freedom from inner grasping. It's the freedom to then pursue God. The first commandment, love God, 10th commandment, result of that. Does this make sense to you? So if you, if you love God enough that nothing else matters to me, to you, you'll be content. You'll be free. You'll be able to live a life of contentment, as Paul says in Philippians 4. And you see this guy, back to the rich young ruler, he's just the opposite of that. Something in my life's missing. He's grasping for more. He's coveting. He's anxious. He's fretting. He knows something's missing. He's kept all the commandments, but they're all falling apart because he has not figured out what it means to have God as his God. He's made something else as God. And he knows that. <laughs> he knows that. Though he had the other seven locked and loaded, he, he's dialed. He's utterly missing this idea that God has to be God, that That a life of godliness and holiness and freedom begins with saying, God, you are enough. Which is why in verse 21, Jesus says to him, Here's the man, here's the zinger in this great counseling appointment. I want you to imagine your life, young man, without money. I want you to imagine your life. Imagine you're in Jesus' counseling office. I want you to imagine your life without money. I want you to imagine your life without a job. I want you to imagine your life with no trust fund. I want you to imagine your life with no house on the beach. I want you to imagine your life with no new toys at Christmas, with no iPhone X, no Tesla, though those are probably not going to be the thing you give yourself at Christmas, no college saving for your kids, no equity in your home. I want you to imagine your life with that all gone, all of it gone. Imagine that for yourself. I mean, that's a bad day. Verse 22, the man's face just falls, and he goes away sad because he had great wealth. I mean, that's a hard thing to hear from anyone, let alone Jesus. I want you to imagine your life with nothing. I mean, how would you feel if Jesus put you in that place? I love the message translation of that verse, verse 22. It says, he walked away with a heavy heart because he was holding tight onto a lot of things. And he was not about to let them go. And that's the crux of the issue right there. Jesus is saying, hey, yeah, commandments... Three through, well, you skip four, but let's assume he's practicing the Sabbath. Three through nine, you've got dialed, man, but you're missing, you're missing. You're grasping so tight onto your life and your stuff that you're not experiencing what I have for you, which is a life of wholeness and freedom. Uh, And to put it maybe this more simply, that verse from verse 22, his stuff has begun to possess him. It's got a hold of him. You know, he's holding tight to it, but it's become his functional God. And he knows that. It's, it's becoming the source of his identity. It's becoming the source of his identity. Um, and there's, a, there's an extremely important word here, the NIV translation, which we read, where it kind of lets us down. It says he went away sad. Uh, I actually think the message gets it a little closer. The, the Old King James gets it right. It says he grieved. He went away grieving. He's grieving. It's like a death in the family. Uh, and you know why that's significant. There's another place in the New Testament where that same word, for he went away sad or he grieved, is used. And do you know where it is? It's in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26. Uh, Jesus is facing the reality of abandonment, arrest, execution. And we're literally told in verse 38 of Matthew 26, his soul was overwhelmed with sorrow, grief, to the point of death. Do you know why Jesus is feeling such sorrow and grief? To the point of death in the Garden of Gethsemane? Like he's going into like visceral shock. Do you know why? Like I think he's crying tears, right, of blood. Because he's experiencing this sense of losing the joy of his life, which was not his ministry and not his community of disciples. It was his relationship to the Father. He felt alone, abandoned, utterly uh, just left. He's losing the source of his identity, which is his connection to the Father. He's losing the core of his significance. He's losing his spiritual center. He's losing his self, right? And Jesus says to this young man, I want you to divest yourself of all your stuff. And this man begins to grieve. You know why? Because he knows (laughs) that his stuff had become his center, become what the father was to Jesus, that his identity was was rooted in his possessions. He he knew he was going to begin to lose himself, all that he was, if he did that. And Jesus says, hey, it's great if you have God as a boss. That's commandments kind of three through nine. It's great to have God as an example. Go ahead. Do the Sermon on the Mount. God as an example. It's great to have God as your helper. I mean, I'm here as a counselor if you want to listen, but I want to be your Savior. I want to be your Lord. I want to be the only source of your identity. And, and if you don't come to Jesus as that, your life will fall apart. He says, if you want to be a Pharisee, go ahead. You can be like all the Pharisees out there. Go ahead and repent of your sins. Live that life of religion. But if you want to be a Christ follower, if you want to follow me into this world I've called you into, you have to repent of not just your bad things, all the bad stuff you've done, but the good things you're trying to do. Repent of your goodness. Repent of like being successful in the commandments. <laughs> if you want intimacy with God, if you want to get over the sense that, you're, that something's missing in your life, Repent of your goodness. That's what Jesus is inviting us to do. Uh, Repent of the ways which you make becoming and being good our God. Uh, You know, being a part of a church, showing up to a small group, memorizing Bible verses. All that's good, but that's not our God. That's not where our identity comes from. Uh, And what this means for our lives here today is in our stuff, our possessions, especially in our culture. Like, our culture is one of the most consumeristic cultures ever. We have to be careful. Like one of the main ways, if not the main way, like our career, you have to be careful here. It's so subtle. Your career beca- can become the source of your identity. Success can become an identity piece for you. Your ability to go out to nice restaurants, you know, and buy for your friends. Your To buy new things without going into your savings account or credit cards. Your ability to move around in professional culture. Upward mobility, disposable income. all that, All that stuff has the power to become much more important to us than we know. We're just like him. We can become just like him. I think he got sucked into it subtly. It's the power to become the vehicle in our culture of forming our identity and shaping our identity. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the source of your identity. I need to begin there and then let everything else fall into place. And by the way, I just need to say this before moving on, and we'll move on to the sort of the... That's, I'm setting up the problem. And we're going to move on to the solution. But this is not... A call to asceticism, okay? I read something in Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline, recently. I'm just going to read it real quick. But he's, and it's about this idea that we tend to think of simplicity as getting rid of our stuff and living a life of asceticism. You know what I'm saying? And here's what he says. Asceticism and simplicity are mutually incompatible, okay? Occasional superficial similarities in practice must never obscure the radical difference between the two. Listen to this. Asceticism renounces possessions. This is not what Jesus is saying to do. Simplicity sets possessions in their proper perspective. Okay? Asceticism finds no place in a land flung with milk and honey. God's invited us into a land flung with milk and honey. Things are good. God created good things. Simplicity rejoices in the gracious provision of God at the hand of God, of those things. Do you hear this? Asceticism finds contentment only when it's abased. Simplicity knows contentment in both abasement and abounding. Okay? That's what simplicity is. God, you've provided for my family. God, you've provided for my church. You're a good provider. Simplicity is the only thing that sufficiently reorients our lives so that possessions can genuinely be enjoyed without destroying us. These things are destroying this young man. And Jesus is saying, don't let your stuff destroy you. Don't let it become your God. And therefore, it's not because wealth is bad that Jesus calls this man to give it all away. It's also not because accruing wealth has led him into breaking the commandments. No, he's held them up. Jesus is saying his stuff has him. He's saying your possessions have power to possess you, blind you, and, and prevent you from understanding what it means to live out a life as a citizen of the kingdom of God, okay? So that's the problem, okay? Stuff has real power. And Jesus has invited us to put it in his proper perspective. So here's the solution. So you know the the problem, like, oh my gosh, I've got stuff, (laughs) right? Listen to the solution. It's really just simple. Seek first the kingdom of God. Uh, And really the framework for the passage, just before this man runs up, falls at Jesus' feet, right before this, do you know what Jesus is doing? He's giving a children's sermon. He's got these kids around him, just like we had with Matthew. And he says, let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to them. That's what he's doing. And then just after this man leaves discouraged and depressed, Jesus says to his disciples, it's hard for people with many possessions who are being possessed by their possessions to enter the kingdom of God. He does that several times. It's really hard, but it's the point. Jesus, the underlying message of his his teaching here in this part of the gospel, perhaps all the gospels, if you read through them, Jesus is always talking about the kingdom of God and what it looks like to live as a citizen of that kingdom. Himself as king, and us as citizens of the kingdom. So remember what Jesus says elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 6. You know, it's a related passage. He's talking about worry, anxiety. Like, why are you worrying about like, what you're going to wear and what you're going to eat? He says, don't worry. Don't worry. And do you know why? <laughs> he says, you don't need to worry because if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all of that will be given to you. All of it you'll be taken care of. Seek first the kingdom. Don't worry about tomorrow. It's got enough worry for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything will fall into place. So, it's all about seeking the kingdom of God, and that's the solution. The central point of the discipline of simplicity is to just simply seek the kingdom of God, His righteousness, first, and everything necessary in your life will come into proper order. Okay, So, What's that about? (laughs) Like, how does that look to seek the kingdom of God? That's kind of the question, the crux question for us. And it's kind of impossible to overstate the importance of this because everything hinges on this as the first thing. Uh, Nothing can come before the kingdom of God. Indeed, in the midst of a, like a really materialistic society that we live in, um, we're, we're being torn between consumerism, asceticism, I've got so much stuff, I can't wait to give it away, I want more, you know, there's this kind of We're living in this anxiety. We're just called to this countercultural stubbornness. Like, first and only, the only priority of my life. I wake up in the morning, God, I want to seek your kingdom. Yet, that's just a weird thing to say. (laughs) Because you don't wake up. You're like, God, I've got a calendar of appointments to go to. I've got to go shopping today to feed my family. I've got to earn some money so we can stay in this house and live in this city. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? And then allow God to give us all those things that He, he wants to provide for us. Well, do you remember, this, some of you weren't here last week, but last week we talked about the story of Mary and Martha, and this story where Jesus comes to their house. We were talking about the discipline of meditation. Uh, Jesus goes to Mary and Martha's house, and Martha is literally running around. You know, she's anxious, it says in the Gospel of Luke, doing many, many things, Right? She's like the hostess. And uh, it uses the same word for anxious that Jesus uses there in Matthew 6 when he says, don't be anxious about your life. He says, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many, many things, but there's only one thing necessary. And Mary's found it. Sit down and focus on me. So seek first the kingdom of God. Don't be anxious. Hey, Mary's figured it out. Sit down and focus on me. On me, Do you see what it means to seek first the kingdom of God now? See, what Jesus is saying is that worry, anxiety, living un- discontent with what you've got is always a, a, always a lack of proportion in your life. Always a lack of proportion. Things are out of proportion. So if Jesus is the center, he's saying, that then there'll be no anxiety in your life. He's promising that. If your career, if your relationships, if your material comfort, if money, if anything else is the center... Life is just going to be completely out of focus. And the result is going to be anxiety. Just so you're going to wake up worried about tomorrow. Today, you're going to be torn up with anxiety. That's what Jesus is saying in these stories. So, in other words, you and I are like Hansel and Gretel. (laughs) And our fears are like the breadcrumbs. And you just follow those breadcrumbs to the house of the witch. And she's going to put you in the oven. I'm not sure where that came from, but... uh, (laughs) What I'm saying, I wrote that down and it made sense like yesterday, but now I'm like, I have no idea. But, uh, and I'm not even taking any pain medication for this thing. So, in other words, our anxieties just come from a lack of proportion, from a lack of a sense of proportion. Uh, And thus, simplicity in life and the discipline of simplicity and seeking first the kingdom is really just a matter of putting life and the things in life in proportion to Jesus put me first, seek first my kingdom. You see, you see what I'm saying? Focus on Jesus in proportion to all the rest. That means your prayer life in proportion to your calendar when you wake up. Start with, start with your prayer life. That means fellowship with other Christians in proportion to all your work appointments, This is why we emphasize getting in a small group and studying God's Word together. Put that in proportion. That means mission, like doing things like the good neighbor team, and ministry, helping out here on Sunday, in proportion to just going out and spending time on vacation all the time. Putting in proportion to all the other things. It means growth in your faith, growth in grace. If that comes first, if Jesus Jesus says, I can guarantee, I promise you, all the other things will come. Everything else will be taken care of. The zeros in your bank account will somehow add up. Like, everything will fall into place because you'll be able to think more about me. Trust me, I must be your God, is what he's saying. Nothing else can be. Not your success, not your security, not your vitality, not your health, none of that stuff. God and God alone. In fact, there's this great story of Queen Elizabeth I, not the second, so that you know that Queen Elizabeth II. The first one, she once told this man, you maybe have heard this story, that she wanted to go on this voyage to the new world, which is the world we're living in now, because they needed his skills on this voyage to make it a success. And the story goes like this. This man looked at her and said, hey, I'm a small business owner. Um, My business has kind of been floundering. And if I leave, I just know it's going to sink. It's going to tank. And I'll be homeless when we come back. I won't have anything. And you know what she said to him? This is how the story goes. My friend, you mind my business and I'll mind your business. You mind my business, which is going on this voyage. I'm the queen of England, and I'll mind your business. I'll take care of it. I mean, that's Queen Elizabeth, the monarch of England. If I mind your business, I'm this guy. If I mind her business, she'll mind mine. That's a great deal. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you mind my business, if you if you focus on me, I'll take care of you. I'll, I've got your back. I've got your life. i I've got today. I've got tomorrow. I've got it. I'm enough. And by the way, it's, this is not easy. Like I said several times in this passage, Jesus tells the disciples after the man goes away, it's hard to seek the kingdom of God. Like, yes, it is simply focusing on Jesus, but that's not easy. It's In fact, it's easier for a camel, he says, to go through the eye of a needle Than it is for a rich person with lots of possessions to get into the kingdom of God, to enter into it, to focus on Jesus. And I know there's been a lot of speculation in the church. I didn't grow up in the church, but I've heard that there have been lots of sermons about the camel and the eye of the needle. And that, like, what that all means, what that idiom means. Let me just say, Jesus is simply just trying to say, it's hard. (laughs) Like, try and wrap your head around that picture. Impossible, in fact, he says. it's hard when your life is filled with anxiety, concerns, commitments, all those things weighing you down to get very far in, on your journey toward God's kingdom and Christ's kingdom. It just, those things are not going to help. They're going to hold you back. Let me give you an illustration of that. The first time I climbed Mount Rainier, which was about, whoa, 20 years ago. <laughs> now I'm feeling old. Uh, I, I had watched some friends do this, and I was like, oh, I have to have one of those Big REI backpacks. So I go to REI, I get the big one, you know, like the, the 75 liter or whatever they, whatever the biggest one I could get was. And then I'm like, well, I have to have enough to fill that thing up. So I filled it up. And you know how much my pack was? The first time I climbed. By the way, we were successful. It's like 60 pounds. And <laughs> like that was an exhausting trip. Like if you've ever carried a 60-pound anything anywhere, like my son is like over 60 pounds now. I don't carry him because it's just too heavy. It's not going to be a good day. Compare that to the last time I climbed Mount Rainier, which was just a few years ago. Guess how heavy the pack was that I carried on that trip? 25 pounds. In fact, I never climb with anything heavier than 25 pounds now. And I haven't died, (laughs) nearly, but that's cycling. Uh, And the difference was my level of trust. That's the big difference. There's a difference in weight, but I had to trust that the things on my pack would be enough... To, to protect me from the cold, to get me to the top, trust my team, trust my training and preparation, all those things. Uh, in other words, a camel's chance of making it through the eye of a needle, there's just too much mass. It's too heavy. It's just too big. My chance of summoning Mount Rainier, oh gosh, so hard. God is saying, if you're not trusting me, if you're loaded down with anxieties, concerns, stuff... And if your stuff is possessing you because you can't let go of it, you don't trust. And you, you have to trust God. You have to trust God. I think what Jesus is saying to us and what he's saying to this man is it's one thing to believe in God, to do the commandments. It's another thing to trust God. They're very different. Do you, I mean, do you trust God? Jesus is saying, trust me. Don't just believe in me. Trust me. Listen to what I'm saying but obey me. Obey me enough to trust me in doing those things. Seek my kingdom first. There's some of you that are probably saying, like, I put my faith in Jesus. I have prayed to receive Christ, but I, I've never received him as Savior. I don't know what trust looks like. To let go of all that stuff you're talking about, I don't know what that looks like, Jack. Um, I've never put him at the very center of my life. Uh, I've never trusted him with my career. I've never trusted him with my marriage. I've never trusted him with all of my life for provision. My backpack feels kind of full right now of, of things. And frankly, the journey for you is yeah, not very fun. You're just feeling weighed down. It's too much. Others of you are saying, I'd love to trust, but I've never been able to believe in God. Like that's a huge, wild leap. I wish I could believe. I've never been able to do it. It's just too big. And in both cases, the, the real problem with you <laughs> And with me, many many times, is you're refusing to doubt yourself. Trust is about doubting. Is re, you're refusing to doubt yourself. You think you're competent to run your own life. You think you're afraid to give your life to Christ. You you don't think He's competent to do it, so you do it yourself. Uh, this is an, trusting in God is an act of absolute blind faith. Uh, there's no evidence for it. You, you you just leap in. You have to you have to. In a sense, doubt yourself. I, I, I know I can't run my own life. I have to believe in Jesus, believe into Jesus, trust Him. Uh, I re- you know, that's what it means to trust Jesus. Come to Him, know that He's the Lord, he, that He can turn your life into anything. He, he could have turned stones into bread in the wilderness, and He refused to do it because He trusted God, He depended on God. He didn't take matters into his own hand. He's inviting you to do the same. So, and he provides a way into that trust. Okay. So that's the, the solution, is focusing on the kingdom of God, focusing on Jesus enough. And here's the result, and I'll, I won't take long on this point. Uh, you'll have an encounter with the real Jesus. So the problem is our stuff possesses us. Solution, seek first, put Jesus in focus, and here's the, here's the result. You'll have an encounter with the real Jesus, so, the sad thing with this story is that the rich young ruler goes away really sad, depressed, grieving, which is the only time in all the gospels that anyone who's invited into discipleship leaves sad. He's the only one. He's the only example of some of the gospels that Jesus calls into discipleship and refuses. Uh, <laughs> And why is that? I mean, the message translation, like I read earlier, seems to articulate it pretty well. He was holding tight onto a lot of things. Do you know Do you know what a real practical encounter with the real Jesus looks like? It looks like this. If you read all the other stories of people who encounter Jesus are invited into discipleship, who are transformed, it looks like letting go of their lives. Uh, as Dustin often does with some guys we hang out with, palms up. That's the difference. I mean, this guy is holding on to his life, holding on to his stuff, and Jesus is saying, if you want to have a real encounter with me, hands open, palms up. Take your hand off your life. So to that end, by way of response, I want to invite our worship leaders up. Here's what I want to do with you. This is, a I want to invite us into a practice of simplicity together in community, okay? And we're going to do this this little thing uh, that I often do when I'm kind of feeling anxious. Um, and it really is just a practice of simplicity. It's not really about your stuff. It's not about, like, simplifying your life and getting rid of the stuff in your garage and hoping that that high school youth group comes by your house and takes the couch. It's not that. It's about this inward grasping and being free from anxiety and free from fear, okay? And so this, this discipline looks like this. I just want to invite us, I call it palms up, palms down. I want to invite you just to, I know for visitors this is kind of weird, but I'm going to invite you to do it anyway. Go ahead and close your eyes uh, and just place your palms up, maybe in your lap. And this is just a symbolic indication of your desire to turn over your concerns, your cares, your anxieties to God, okay? So with your hands resting in your palms right there, I just want you to start thinking about the things that maybe are bringing you, are, are making you afraid, anxious, could be a uh, career, could be health, could be not having enough money to pay the bills this month. Could be frustration over not feeling like you have enough time, like you're being torn in so many different directions. Could be things outside your control, things happening in our world. Let those things come into your hands and they might feel heavy. Let me pray for us in this moment. Keep your hands up. Lord, we give you the anxieties we have that are in our lives, in our hands, symbolically in our hands. Anxieties over our jobs. Anxieties over not having enough To take care of ourselves, our families, God, we release our fear of security. We release our frustrations around not having enough time. God, we release it to you. So, in this moment of release, I just want you to flip your palms over and put them, face them down. And maybe even have them above your your legs so they're kind of hovering there. And you may feel a sense of release as you do that. God, we give you those things that we carried here. We release them to you. We want to seek Jesus first and only. Now, here's the last thing. Just put your, your palms back up. And again, I'm just modeling something you could do at home. And I want to pray this prayer over us. This is an act of receiving, a desire to receive from the Lord now. See, God wants to give to us as we put Christ at the center of our lives. So let me pray this over us. Lord, we open our hands to receive your delight for us, your love for us. We can see each of, We can see you looking at each of us like you did the rich young ruler. With deep, deep love and compassion. And God, so we, we open our hands to receive your peace around these areas where we're fearing or we're feeling anxiety. God, we open our hands to receive your patience around our future. God, we open our hands to receive your joy, that you love to care for us. we open our hands to receive trust, the ability to trust you. And now with our hands up, just silently silent commune with the Lord as we enter into a time of response and worship.